One school memory I can recall quite vividly when I was still living in Scotland was a day when our class had the world's greatest substitute teacher. Now, if you are a teacher, I don't care what you say, you're just going to have to be offended by that statement. He was the world's best substitute teacher. His name was Mr. Donnelly, and he just was the man. Kids loved it when they walk, he walked into their classroom. And the one day I remember having him, he somehow managed to spend an entire morning with grade six students with only writing four words up on the board. And then he patiently coached us as we all took stabs, figuring out firstly what the phrase meant, and secondly, its significance. And this is what he wrote. Why is a place... Why is a place? No punctuation, just those four words. Now, being dumb kids, and most of them have gone out now, so they can't hear that, I remember it took us a long time to figure out what he wasn't trying to tell us, which is he wasn't telling us about a location that had the name Why. And once we sussed that out, we began to understand that he was getting us to ponder why places exist. Why did the town that we lived in exist? And he was very creatively leading us down the path of history, which helps us understand why each of us finds ourselves in the places that we do. And ever since then, that question has stuck with me, and I've always been curious as to the formation of villages and towns and cities and countries. And so I'm grateful for Mr. Donnelly teaching us, teaching me, the importance of places. And perhaps we've never thought about it this way before, but we know intuitively that places are important. The place where we live is important to us. The place that we come from is important to us. We may be looking for a place that we haven't found yet, but that we desire to discover. Sometimes we are glad to leave a place. Sometimes we long to return to one. Some people are drawn to a place in the city, others to a place in the country, some to the sea, some to the mountains, some to a place because of opportunity, and some to a place because of the people who live there. Places, as it turns out, have significant influence in our lives. Now, as Christians, there is one place we have never been to that should influence us more than any other. There's a place that we should miss, that we should long for, even though we have never set our eyes upon it. And the extent of the longing will determine the size of the influence, and the influence ought to be enormous. And if you're here this morning listening to this and you're not a Christian, the place that I am speaking of is one I hope that you will be drawn in by as you hear about it. One that I pray will awaken a sense of longing, a desire that you should go there and that you would eagerly seek out the way. The place is one that God promises to provide for his people. And believing in that promise shapes our lives here and now. Trusting God will provide a place for his people produces a harvest of righteousness in us. That's what the thrust of the passage before us this morning, which I'll read in a moment, is. Trusting God will provide a place for us produces a harvest of righteousness in us. 
a harvest of the choicest fruits, five of them in particular, and to see them and then to evaluate the presence of them or absence of them in our lives, I'm going to invite you to turn to Genesis 13 in your Bible or on your phone or tablet, whatever you have with you, but please do open up Genesis 13 as we continue in our series and see for yourself what God's Word says about this particular matter. So Genesis 13, we're going to work our way through the whole chapter by God's grace. And before we read it, let me pray and ask for God's help for you and for me as we come to his word together now. Let's pray. Lord, as the psalmist asks, how can a young man keep his way pure? We realize this is a question for all of us. How can we keep our way pure in this world, being in the world, but not of the world? And the psalmist goes on to say, by guarding it according to your word. And so, Lord, this morning, help us with our whole heart to seek you. Let us not wander from your commandments. Help us to store up your word in our heart, even now that we might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach us your statutes. And help us with our lips to declare all the rules of your mouth. Help me in that task of preaching this morning. Help us, Lord, to, in the way of your testimonies, delight as much as in all riches. To meditate on your precepts and fix our eyes on your ways. Help us to delight in your statutes, Lord. Let us not forget your word. So be gracious to us, I pray, Lord, to open our eyes, to focus our understanding, to soften our hearts, to receive the food of your holy word as we sang together. And do this for the glory of the Son whom you love, and to whose hands you have given all things, and by the power of the Spirit you have so generously equipped us with, not only for your word to be preached, but so that we might have spiritual insight and understanding, which we cannot have apart from the work of your Spirit. And so these things we ask in Jesus' name, and all of God's people say, Amen. Genesis 13, then, beginning in verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen, brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. Now this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, 
Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Did you notice, as we read, and some of you have your, your scripture journals in front of you, you're taking notes, did you notice as we read the numerous places mentioned in these 18 verses? There are 12 unique locations, some of them repeated. Egypt, the Negev, Bethel, Ai, the Jordan Valley, Zoar, Sodom, Gomorrah, Canaan, Mamre, and Hebron. And did you also notice the repetition of the word land? You see it there in verse 6? You see it there in verse 7? So verse 6 and verse 7, we see the word land. It's also there in verse 9. So verse 6, verse 7, verse 9. It's also in verse 15. So if you're keeping track, 6, 7, 9, 13. And one final time in verse 17. This repetition of the word land in those verses. And as far as initial observations go, did you also catch the theme of dwelling or settling? Just like land, it's mentioned in verse 6 and 7. But this dwelling or settling is also mentioned in verse 12 and verse 18 as well. So 6, 7, 12, and 18. And I trust that explains the introductory emphasis on place. God's promise to give one to his covenant people, a restoration of the loss of Eden in Genesis 3, begins with Abram. A promise initially given in Genesis 12, and one that resurfaces again here after Abram returns to the land following his departure and failure in the land of Egypt. And as we follow the life of this patriarch, we will repeatedly witness the mixture of the doubt of clay with the iron of faith. As obstacles arise, and they will repeatedly, as crisis points emerge that seem to jeopardize God's promise, sometimes Abram responds with faith, and sometimes he responds with doubt, just like us. But when, in periods of doubt, our human efforts blow up in our faces, trusting anew in God's promise of a place for us produces a harvest of righteousness in us. A harvest of the choicest fruits, the first of which is repentance. When we travel in the opposite direction from the inheritance that God ensures his covenant people of, and we suffer for it, when we recall God's promise again, it causes us to turn back. Trusting God's promise of a place for us produces repentance in us. Look at the beginning of those, uh, this chapter, verses 1 to 4. It begins, so Abram went up from Egypt. This, as we saw two weeks ago, was significant. Before Abram went down into Egypt, he descended, which was more than just physical, it was also spiritual. But now he ascends, not just back into the land God promised to give, but spiritually back to the altar he had built at first when he again called upon the name of the Lord in verse 4. 
And this is clearly an indication of return, of renewal, of hitting the reset button. We are now back to where we started. We're back on track. Abram is where he was supposed to be, not in Egypt, which, by the way, there was no mention of altars. There was no mention of worship, no mention of calling on the name of the Lord. But now Abram is back in the land of Cain, in the land of promise, which is an indication of his faith and the promise God gave to him at first back in Genesis 12, when he said, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Where he says, I will make of you a great nation and bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So no doubt, God's deliverance of Sarai from Pharaoh's harem, God's faithfulness in spite of Abram's faithlessness is only underscoring the trustworthiness of God to this man. And so experiencing God's rescue amidst his failure, Abram would know that God truly meant what he said. And we can know the same. Knowing God's faithfulness to his covenant promises here provides us with a a page from God's playbook. This teaches us what to expect in our dealings with God and God's dealings with us. And it's that he welcomes back prodigals. He welcomes them back. In fact, the entire population of the place that God promises to his people has a history of U-turns. If we were to Google map, if it was possible, to Google map the spiritual journey of all of those who will enter the promised land of the new heavens and the new earth, not one of them would be a straight line. Not a one. From the moment of initial repentance and trust in Christ, that first and most crucial of U-turns, there would be many stops and many detours. Doubts in God's promises that cause us to turn to the left and sinful pursuits that cause us to turn to the right, they would all be mapped out. But they would also be mapped out much doubling back, doubling back, which is evidence of grace. Evidence of the Spirit convicting of sin and convincing of righteousness. Evidence of God's promises being brought again to mind to powerfully pull us out of the ditches that we have driven into and set us once more in the direction of the land of promise. That's what happened to Abram. He went from Ur to Canaan. You have arrived at your destination. He went from Canaan to Egypt, recalculating. And then back to Canaan, where once more he called upon the name of the Lord. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith is the pattern. Turning back to trust again and the promise of God is the normal pattern of the Christian life. And when that pattern is broken is when we should be gravely concerned. It's those that don't turn back should be most alarmed. If Abram had never again called upon the name of the Lord as he did at first, we would know his true spiritual condition. But that he did also revealed his true spiritual condition. And what of us? Perhaps we pulled over this past week into a sinful rest stop that we should never have ventured into. Our vision was clouded by pressing circumstances We never took time to hear God's voice in his word, and we never took time to seek his counsel in prayer, and now we bitterly regret it. If that's where you've entered this past week, I want you to look 
now to the God of Abram. And here again, the promise of a place offered to us in and through Abram's seed, Jesus Christ, and call upon the name of the Lord for mercy and for grace. There is a place promised, a place for prodigals such as we all are. And that ought to compel us to repent when we sin to produce this fruit of righteousness in us, a fruit that leads to many, many more. Trusting God's promise of a place for us also produces the fruit of peace in us. Trusting God's promise of a place produces repentance. It also produces the fruit of peace. Abram's renewed faith, seen in his turning back to the promised land, his calling upon the Lord, trusting in the promise of a place, doesn't mean that the testing of faith is over. His faith is going to be tested again and again and again. In the previous episode, there was a crisis due to a famine. No, a crisis emerged is because Abram is literally loaded. He leaves for Egypt because of a heavy famine. He comes back from Egypt heavy with silver and gold as well as livestock. And there's a wordplay here because the writer intends for us to draw the contrast. And his nephew Lot mentioned last in the entourage, maybe an indication that there's already some estrangement. Also in anticipation of the upcoming separation, Abram's nephew Lot, verse 5 tells us, is also wealthy. This is extremely problematic for these nomadic shepherds. Their flocks needed fresh pasture and water lest they die, which would ruin both Abram and Lot. And so danger is brewing here for the covenant patriarch through whom all the nations of the earth were to be blessed. Life and death in the balance, which is why the CEOs of Abram's and Lot's assets are engaged in the turf war. And adding to the problem, verse 7 tells us, is that the land is also crowded with the Canaanites and, and Perizzites. There's not much room for ranching. There's not lots of real estate up for grabs. So poverty and wealth, it seems, each produce their own sets of problems. Yeah, possessions, position, and promise do not go to Abram's head. He's not marked by the entitlement that often comes with money and power. Instead, he is marked as a son of God by his humble, generous efforts at peacemaking. Look again at verses 8 and 9. Let there be no strife between you and me. And between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, we are kinsmen. We're family. Is not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. If you take the, the left hand, I'll go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. This is astonishing. Abram's older. Lot's his nephew. Abram is wealthier. He's got the silver and gold. And Abram is the one whom God has covenanted with, promising the land. And so for all those reasons, Abram is Lot's superior. And in this ancient Near Eastern setting, no, absolutely no one would have questioned if Abram had said, Lord, I'm going here, you go there. Or I'm going there and you go here. No one would have batted an eye. Instead, he humbles himself. He's willing to disadvantage himself all for the sake of unity among brothers. 
And this action both reflects the heart of God and prefigures Jesus, who would be descended from Abram. The scriptures call God a God of peace. A God who acts to make peace with those who have alienated themselves from him and become his enemies. He is willing and he has made it possible that those enemies, that we, his enemies, instead be called his friends. This was accomplished through the person of Jesus Christ, who, though rich, made himself poor. Who, though God, added a human nature to his divine nature. Who, though almighty, submitted himself to death, even death on a cross. And this he did for our sake, so that by faith we might be justified, Romans 5.1, and what? Have peace with God. And from this overflows the way of making peace with others and experiencing peace within our own selves. In this peacemaking endeavor of God's, there is indescribable generosity, foreshadows of which are both on display in the outworking of Abram's faith in Genesis 13. You see, God's promising to Abram the bountiful blessing of a place. God's promising us a bountiful blessing of a place means that we can hold everything that we have right now in an open hand quite willing to let go of whatever is temporary so that we can hang on to the atmosphere of heaven, which is peace. When we trust that God promises a place for us, we won't see wealth or power or authority or influence as being for ourselves but instead to be used for the sake of others. And there is a tremendous need for this to be demonstrated in our world today. And I believe that those most settled in the future hope of what is to come will reap the greatest harvest of this in their lives for now. When God is preparing a place for us that no eye has seen or ear heard or the heart of man imagined, what do we have to be selfishly ambitious about? Is there something better that we can fight tooth and nail for here than the everlasting pleasures that we will one day enjoy at the right hand of God? Open up your hands. Let the things that God has given to you run through your fingers to bless others. Of course there is nothing better that we can do and pursue in this world, in this life. Which means we should never strive, uh, we should strive rather never to be the cause of a wake of relational discord as we look over our shoulders at the things that we've done and said in the past. As far as it depended upon him, Abram was committed to living at peace with Lot. And that same mindset is available. In fact, it is ours in Christ Jesus. I'm facing east right now, and I can tell because the sun is, you know, I'm going to get a nice tan on my legs here, nothing else, but I'm facing east right now. And, in, and, and so the understanding of what's going on here is so was Abram. And to go to the right or to the left was to go north or south. That's just how they thought directionally speaking in the Hebrew mind. So Abram is saying to Lot, listen, if you go north, I'll go south. If you go south, I'll go north. In other words, Lot, here's the promised land. Take your pick. 
take whatever you want, and I'll take the rest. We should feel the tension in this moment. Abram is offering to give up half of what God promised to Lot. He would later become the father of the Moabites and the Ammonites. He would be a serious obstacle to God's people inhabiting the promised land. And what Lot will choose is enormously significant because at this point, given Lot's association with Abram, as first-time readers, we might be thinking maybe Lot is the solution to Sarai's barrenness. Maybe he'll be the heir. And so if he takes half the promised land that Abram gives to him, then maybe he'll be the one that will have descendants. And through those descendants, as he's connected with Abram, he will be the one to inherit the covenant promise. But it is not to be. Abram offers Lot up to half the promised land, and Lot's eyes turn elsewhere. And the two are separated. Look at verses 10 to 13. Trusting God's promise of a place for us produces a harvest of righteousness in us. It's the fruit of repentance, it's the fruit of peace, and it's the fruit of wisdom, which we see by way of contrast in Lot's folly. Trusting God's promise of a place for us produces wisdom in us. And I believe there are enough indicators in the text to suggest that Lot's choice is viewed unfavorably. Though associating with Abram was a source of blessing, which Lot had experienced, he was rich now too. And though it would have continued to be a blessing because Lot had heard, no doubt, what God had said to Abram, those who bless you, I will bless. Even though all of that is true, Lot chooses otherwise. For Lot, appearances are better than promises, and he chooses accordingly. Yet trusting in God's promise of a place for us will spare us from such folly. Instead, it will produce wisdom in, in us. Look at how this unfolds in verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes. He saw the Jordan Valley was well watered. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. Earlier this week, uh, Pastor Brian texted me a picture of himself roughly in the location where this account takes place. If you want it, I'm sure he'll be happy to send it to you. And the immediate surroundings are dry and barren. Survival there would depend upon the Lord sending needed rain for water and for crops. But often the distance, and you can see it in the picture, in the valley, it looks green and fertile. Constant water, constant pasture, Lot's business sense is excellent. The descriptions in the text sound initially, initially favorable. It was like Eden but it was also like Egypt. And it required traveling, notice, it required traveling in which direction? East. Which by now we should know in Genesis is a movement away from the Lord. The entrance to the Garden of Eden was at the east side and the, the, the cherubim was placed with a flaming sword to guard the westward way back to the tree of life. Adam and Eve couldn't go in that direction. They could only go east. Genesis 3 tells us that Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. People migrated east and built the city and Tower of Babel, which the Lord destroyed. And now Lot is looking in the same direction towards a place that will be the same judgment as Babel did Sodom. He lifts up his eyes and he sees with physical sight, which in a moment will be contrasted with God's command to Abram to lift up his eyes and see by faith. Abram was looking for a permanent place, a city whose builder and founder was God. Lot was looking for a temporal place, and his judgment suffered severely as a result. 
If we are only living for the city of man and not for the city of God, we will lack serious discernment, yet trusting in God's promise of a place for us will produce wisdom in us. Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come, Hebrews 13, 14. And seeking that city to come will influence life's decisions to align with citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. That's what the writer to the Hebrews tells us Abram was looking forward to, Hebrews eleven twenty, to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And we await the same, a new Jerusalem, that Christ has gone to prepare for us, that will come down out of heaven from God, the heavenly city at the center of the new heavens and new earth, the ultimate land grant God will bless his people with, established through his son, our Lord Jesus. A city that is holy. A city where nothing unclean ever enters. A city where there is no night because the glory of God and the Lamb will eternally enlighten it. A city whose gates are never shut because there will be no more dangers in need of protection from. A city with only truth and no lies. A city where all the inhabitants and those who enter in from all the nations are loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ. And most wondrous of all, this is a city where God himself dwells with his people. And the description is of the city, if we think on them, is a description of the world that we all want, is it not? If you're not a Christian listening to this, does that not sound compelling? Doesn't it sound relieving? A place you'd never have to lock your doors because no one's going to break in and steal? A place where you'd never have to doubt someone's word because no one would ever lie? A place where you'd never have to look over your shoulder in fear that someone was coming after you. A place that you would never feel out of place in because you have been brought there by God himself. This is the world that we all want, but the only way that we can have it is through Christ. We cannot create a utopia for ourselves. We've been trying and we've been failing. Look at the last century when human beings took power and authority to try and control the outcomes and create a perfect society and ended up being some of the worst countries, societies on the face of the planet in human history. And that's because we are part of the problem. The problem isn't outside of us and the solution, as the Disney movies tell you, to be found looking deep inside ourselves. The problem is inside. And the solution is outside of us with God and with God alone. And God promises the place that we want. And he made the way open for us to enter the place that he promises, which is believing in his perfect, crucified, risen, and soon returning son. A promise in a way that began with Abram. A promise that Abram believed, a promise he trusted, and therefore a promise that shaped him in righteous ways, just as it should us. And so believing this, Abram settled in Canaan, as verse 12 tells us, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. And listen, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. No good can come of this. How does the book of Psalms begin? Blessed is the man who does not 
walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But Lot moves into their neighborhood, described with a uniquely sinister phrase, wicked, great sinners. He immerses himself with people who are especially alienated from God. And as we have already seen in Genesis, those who miss the mark of God's standard are met with judgment. Someone has written over 60 times in the Old Testament, sin and death occur in the same context or vicinity. And Paul's reading the Old Testament when he writes, the wages of sin is death, right? And this is what will come to the people of Sodom because of their exceptional evil as will be true for all who refuse to repent of their wickedness. So a word then to the wise. The grass may look greener on the world's side of the fence, but it is not so. Perhaps you're a young man, you're a young woman, you've been raised in a Christian home, and you find your gaze is increasingly drifting to the life that many are enjoying now, rather than the narrow way of Christ that leads to the pleasures of the world to come. If we could sit down with Lot and record a podcast interview with him and go back to this decision in his life, I would believe he would say this was certainly a defining one, and it's one that I wish I could go and do differently. He should have stuck with Abram in the promised land. He should have heard that there would be blessing for himself should he associate with and seek to bless Abram. And nothing has changed. Jesus Christ is the seed of Abraham and all who bless him are blessed. But those who curse him, those who abandon him for temporary pleasures rather than eternal ones, well, they will be cursed. And we will see what happens to Lot. He could have had heaven. And he set up camp right beside the gates of hell itself, as it were. Yet believing that God promises a place for us will guide us with wisdom through life's decisions to keep us near to the heart and way of Christ and far from the folly of Lot. Now, despite the sobering foreshadowing of coming events, which emphatically sets aside any potential of Lot serving as Abram's heir, The Lord speaks to Abram once Lot leaves, and in this we observe a fourth choice fruit. Trusting God's promise of a place for us produces the fruits of repentance, produces the fruits of peace, it produces the fruits of wisdom, and it produces, fourthly, the fruits of blessing. Trusting God's promise of a place for us produces blessing in us, for us. And the way this is conveyed upends the typical Hebrew word order to emphasize the Lord speaking. Abram, marked by his trust in God's promise of a place, is affirmed in his faith by what God speaks to him. Abram offers Lot up to half the land, and Lot looks elsewhere, yet the Lord restates the offer of the whole land to Abram. God will richly, richly bless Abram just as he will us in the new heavens and the new earth. And the words are so poignant. Look at verse 14. Make a note of this is if you're keeping track in your journals. This is what it says. It says, lift up your eyes. A lot lifted up his own eyes. And God says to Abram, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. 
Victor Hamilton points out a significant detail that's tucked in here. The word please is present in the original Hebrew language. It's a common word. It's used some 60 times in the book of Genesis. We saw it last time with Abram saying to Sarah, please say you're my sister. But when God speaks, there are only four occasions when he uses this word in his communications with his covenant people. Three of them are Abram. One is here. One is Genesis 15.5, when God brings Abram outside when it's dark, there's no city lights, and he says, look toward the heaven and number the stars. Please look toward the heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. The second, the next time, the third time is Genesis 22.2, where he says to Abraham, please take your son your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And the fourth is Exodus 11, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, this is before the 10th plague, the Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Please speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold and jewelry. These are impossible situations. Hamilton writes, in each of these four passages, God asks somebody to do something that transcends human comprehension. So sometimes God's voice thunders to draw our attention, melting our hearts like wax so that we rightly fear him. And sometimes God speaks with tender entreaty to draw our attention, melting our eyes with tears so that we rightly trust him. Please, Abraham, please, Abram, look, lift up your eyes. Look all around you, every direction, please look. As Abram watches Lod and his flocks and his tents disappear down into the valley, the Lord compels Abram to fill his sights with a vision of the future, a vision that only eyes of faith can see, and the optical nerve that operates the eye of faith is powered by the God for whom nothing is impossible. And God says, I will give you everything northward, southward, eastward, westward. All the land you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever, not Lot. And as indication of this, God commands Abram in verse 17, Rise, walk through the length and breadth of the land. This is the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of putting a sold sign on the front lawn of a house that you just bought. In other words, God was telling Abram to lay claim to the promise, which he did before settling by the oaks of Mamre in Hebron. The deal was done. The closing wouldn't happen in Abram's lifetime, making his faith all the more remarkable, but the deal was done. The Lord affirms Abram's trust, his repentance, his efforts at peace, his humility, his generosity, by assuring him of the blessing he will be given. In this reaffirmation, detail, additional details are given from chapter 12. The land will be given to Abram and his offspring. The land will be given forever. And the land being so sizable will require inhabitants. So the provision of numerous offspring is also promised. This is new information now. 
Not only will the Lord bless Abram's descendants with a place, the place will be populated with a people. And now is as good at any, as any point to ask and answer, why this place? Why this particular acreage on this part of the planet at this time? From what I learned, I, I mean, you know the first rule of real estate, right? Location, location, location. From what I learned during my month of study back in January, the land of Canaan was uh, promised uh, to promise to Abram was slap bang in the middle of the two superpowers, the world superpowers at that time. To the west, so that would be behind me, would be Egypt. And ahead of me, would, to the east, would be Mesopotamia, which is where the Babylonians and the Assyrians came from. And so the land of Canaan was right directly in between those two superpowers. And so that was the travel route between these places. And so as the peoples of the nations, these two most powerful nations would travel back and forth, they would travel through the land of Canaan, the very place God promised Abraham and his descendants. And every time they would travel through, they would witness what it looked like for humans to live in relationship with the God of, and creator of heaven and earth. And that is how the Bible begins in the Garden of Eden. And that's how the Bible ends in the Garden City of the New Jerusalem. And so located there, this is how the blessing of land and the blessing of descendants would bless the nations because everyone would see, ah, this is what the kingdom of God is. This was to be the light to the nations. This is how Israel would bless to the ends of the earth. And this is the role that the church with Christ, the seed of Abram as her head, is to fulfill. Today we exercise faith in the promise of a place as Abram did, not by conquest and building altars, but by proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can't draw the kingdom of God today on a map as we could have in this time, this covenant, but it is made visible in the gatherings of God's people around dinner tables where families engage in worship and hospitality, when we open our homes to evangelize and disciple people who are like us and people who are not like us, and so on and so on it goes. Living as citizens of the kingdom of God in all areas of life is how the nations were to be blessed through the offspring of Abraham, given a vision of what it looked like. And that vision still exists today imperfectly in us, though perfectly in Christ, of how it is that we can have a relationship with God, which is the very purpose of our existence. This is the end to which God was working through Abraham, the ultimate fulfillment of which had to include more than the square footage of the land of Canaan. I know there are people in our church who are dispensational in their eschatology and premillennial in their eschatology. Even if you are, you still have to look beyond a literal 1,000-year reign to the fulfillment of this in the new heavens and the new earth. Even here to Abram, the promise looks beyond Canaan by the very fact that he has promised descendants as numerous as the dust of the earth. Surely that would overpopulate the land of Canaan many, many, many times over. Something bigger is in view here, even in Genesis. And the rest of Scripture reveals to us what that is. 
And Abram's up on this mountain and he's seeing this, uh, this vista of the promised land. And we come to the New Testament and we see the seed of Abram, the risen Christ on the mountain with the vista of the nations before him. And he says to the disciples, what does he say? All authority in heaven and on earth being given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And what this means is that wherever we are on the face of this planet, look north and look south and look east and look west and see that that belongs to Jesus Christ. And when you see people in those places, go and tell them how they might be blessed in the name of Jesus Christ. The hope of a place... of the hope of the forgiveness of sins, of the hope of eternal life, of the hope of a place where God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's so intimate. I got contacts this week to try them out. And it's weird when someone's like in your eyes. I don't even like to touch my own eyeballs. It's such an intimate picture. It's described to you as that God will, as though himself, he'll take his own thumb and he will wipe away the tears in the place that he promises to his people, which begins all the way back with Abram. And so as God calls Abram to lift his eyes to look at what is to come, lift your eyes and look at what is to come as well. Jesus Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And that's what I'm preaching that, proclaiming that is what I believe it looks like to walk the length and breadth of the land today for those who trust in God's promise of a place. And in response to all of this, the account ends as it began with Abram at an altar with worship. Trusting God's promise of a place for us produces repentance, it produces peace, it produces wisdom, it produces blessing, and it produces worship. In verse 4, Abram returns to an altar to call upon the name of the Lord following deliverance from Egypt. In verse 18, he builds another altar, rightly worshiping the Lord who has received him back and shaped him and promised to bless him. Ascribing to God the glory due his name for who he is and all that he has done for us is the fitting response of his people. When all is said and done and Christ comes and we will be with God in the place he promises to us, we read in Revelation 22 verse 3, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. Not on an altar, not in a church building, not outside here in a place like this, but at the very throne. We will ascribe blessing and glory and thanksgiving and honor and power and might to our God forever and ever. In anticipation of this, we're going to engage in musical worship together again, but first let me leave you with the following. I came across an absolute gem of a quotation in our latest family read-aloud. A quotation that sums up the Christian life. It could sum up the book of Revelation. It, it sums up our sojourn and our pilgrimage. Abraham was a, it was a nomad. He traveled. He, was, he lived in tents. And we can relate because this, is not, this world is not our home. We are hoping for the world to come. 
But as we wait, this is what summarizes how we wait. We have to keep loving what's on the other side of this fight, the other side of this rescue, and that will have to make us brave. At the present time, we are the church militant, embroiled in a spiritual battle, and we're to fight it with spiritual weapons, and we're to do it with the heart and meekness and gentleness of Christ. But right now, we are embroiled in a spiritual battle, but the day is coming when we will be the church triumphant, and we will experience the consummation of the victory that Jesus has won for us. But that day is not today. And that day might not be tomorrow, and it might not be the next, and it might not be the next, So the day will come. But in the meantime, we have to keep loving what is on the other side of this fight, the promise of a place, the other side of this rescue, and that will have to make us brave. God promises us a place, and trusting that promise, loving that promise, will make us brave enough to repent when and where we need to. It will make us brave enough to seek peace, even at personal loss. It will make us brave enough to choose the world to come over this world, despite the pressures and the temptations that assail us. It will make us brave enough to proclaim the blessed gospel and brave enough to worship God and God alone, despite the growing cost of doing so. God is promising, has promised to us a place. And if we set our eyes there, it will make us brave enough between now and the